For I know that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. See, Jonah did not want to preach this message of grace because he knew that if Nineveh repented, then God would spare Nineveh. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching radio ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We've just recently finished our series in the book of Romans, and today we continue the second part of a new series of messages in the book of Jonah. In this series, Pastor Brogy is examining both the historicity and the relevance of this great book. In today's message, Pastor Carl continues to unpack why Jonah was so adamant about avoiding Nineveh. Let's join him now. Many of you know the city of Nineveh, that it stood on the east bank of the Tigris River, and it's across from the Iraqi city of Mosul that some of our Marines have been to. And you can see on this map that he uh, comes from a place called gath Do we have a map? There we go. So um, in the middle there, maybe it's not the clearest map, but you can see Israel. In north of the word and south of the word Israel, you can see a body of water. There's a river that comes from the mountains and it creates a lake. That's the first body called the Sea of Galilee. A lot of Christ's ministry, of course, took place there. And then that river continues, the Jordan River, all the way down to the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is very important in Scripture, not only in the past, but in the future. Someday men will be able to fish there. That's what the Scripture teaches when Messiah comes back. Now, in Israel, west of the Sea of Galilee, there's a place called Galilee. And there's a province called Galilee, and there's a city called Nazareth, where Jesus, as you know, spent the first 30 years of his life. Three miles from Nazareth, a half a mile from Cana, is gath where Jonah the prophet grew up. And if you come with me to Israel, sometimes we'll have the opportunity to point out that particular location. And so this is not some Jewish city within Israel that he's being called to go and to preach. He's going to Nineveh. These are Gentiles, and they're not just Gentiles. They are wicked, depraved Gentiles. Now, it's a 500-mile journey from where he is in gath and it's not the distance that bothers him as it is the place. God wants him to go to Nineveh. Now, that's Jonah's commission. Go to Nineveh and preach. In addition to Jonah's commission, I want us to think a little bit about Jonah's message. Jonah's message. The message of truth that Jonah is to preach is very simple. It's found in chapter 3 and in verse 4. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Eight words in English, five words in the Hebrew text, making it the shortest recorded message of any prophet to a rebellious people. Now, notice here in chapter 1 and verse 2 why it is that God wants him to preach this message yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, cry against it. Why? Because, or for, it's causal. Their wickedness has come up before me. Paraphrase, God is saying, I've had it up to here. Just like the sins of Sodom that came up to God as a stench, 
So the sins of this perverted, wicked, and cruel people had come into the presence of God. And so Jonah's mission here in the NASB is to cry against it. The CSB says, preach against it. The Net Bible says, announce judgment against it. So he is not so much informing the people of their specific sins because they are covered over in them. They know their sins. He is here to preach the consequence of their sin, that judgment is coming and that it is imminent. And by the way, God never gave this prophet a promise that he would be successful or that the people would repent or that he would even survive this mission. For all he knew, his head would end up on a pole. And I should mention that there are three evidences from the historical and archaeological data that, that underscores what a wicked people they were. And again, a great deal of light is shed on the archaeological record that has miraculously survived. In the first place, this was the center of a fertility cult. They had worship services, so to speak, that were built around sexual immorality to worship different gods. It was a place that was filled with licentiousness and immorality, and the Ninevites had as their dubious distinction of being known for their utter filth. And by the way, America is becoming more and more like Nineveh. And so today, if I as a pastor speak against transgenderism or homosexuality as sin, then I'm the sinner. And we need to pray for our Canadian pastors because starting this week, it's the law for a pastor to stand in the pulpit and tell people that they can be changed and freed from a transgender homosexual lifestyle will now be against the law. You say it will never happen in America. I guess you haven't read the 2020 Democratic platform, have you? Pull it up online this afternoon. Type in homosexuality. Type in transgenderism. They've got four paragraphs describing what they want to do. They too want to make it a law here in the United States of America. And so we have this unholy trinity, the Speaker of the House, the President, and the Vice President, who are peddling wickedness, immorality, abortion, and now preachers like me, we're the evil ones. Now you need to pray for those people. God cares about our speaker and our president and our vice president, but they are lost. I don't care how much they go to church, they're lost. You will know them by their fruit. I'm not judging them. I'm just making a judgment of what Scripture says. So Nineveh, in the first place, had a fertility cult built around sexual immorality. In the second place, Nineveh was known for its child sacrifice. Massive idols made out of stone have been dug up, and they were in the form of a bull with outstretched arms where a parent would come and place their baby on this God known as a bull, and there he would or she would be sacrificed in a fire to some false God. Not all that different in modern autonomous America, where man worships himself and doesn't want to be inconvenient, inconvenienced by a baby. So people want to have sex without responsibility. Oh, the altar is a little different. It's a little more sophisticated and a 
Planned Parenthood clinic. It's sanitized. It's a medical environment. But it's no different. It's a wickedness. And so they would take, as their own writings that have survived, they would take the baby and they would place it in the arms of this bull god and they would light it on fire and the priest would chant and yell in order to drown out the cries of the little one. And God says, that disturbs me. Third, the Assyrians were known for their cruelty and warfare. You can see pictured here, the reconstructed central gate to the city of Nineveh. Here's a picture of one, another picture of one of their rebuilt walls. Much of Nineveh has been excavated and it's revealed quite a bit and that much of what's been rebuilt was using actually original stones. But as they have unfolded this place, we find what a warlike people they are. They were cruel, they were heartless, they were inhumane. Every time we go to Israel, we go to Yad Vashem, which is like our Holocaust Museum in D.C. And they unfold the wickedness of what took place during the Second World War and the six million Jews who were exterminated. And as bad as that is, nothing compares in modern military history to what the Assyrians did when they fought people. One of their kings describes how they would skin people alive and then they would have their bodies impaled on stakes. Sometimes another king wrote of how they would bury their captives alive. Others record slaughtering their victims and then using their blood to paint their walls. And they wrote about this because they were proud of it. They wanted everyone to know the hallmark of their warfare techniques. And if you want to get a flavor of what it was like, read the book of Nahum. Let me just read a few verses from the prophet Nahum. He prophesies 100 years after Jonah in 650 BC. So two generations down the line where the grandchildren had repented of their grandparents' repentance which is a reminder to me that every generation is new and fresh and every generation must make a decision for Christ. In Nahum chapter three, the prophet wrote, woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies all because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. This is some ancient Assyrian art that has survived, and it's describing one of the kings poking out the eyes of one of the captors. Here's another carving that's been found. It happened after the Hebrews were attacked by the Assyrians and impaling the Jewish people on stakes. 
and still another decorating the city gates, picturing their cruelty. So both the archaeological record and the Word of God and what Jonah tells us without going into all the details describe what an immoral, brutal, unmerciful, and perverted people the Ninevites were. They were inhumane. So how is God going to deal with this? He first sends his prophet so that they can repent and be forgiven. Every now and then somebody says, well, why doesn't God do something? Look what's happening in the world. It's just getting worse, it seems, by the month. God is doing something. And his silence is significant because he wishes for none to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He is giving people more opportunity to respond, but there is coming a day probably sooner than most of us realize when the dam of God's grace and mercy will break to his wrath. Judgment is coming. God always takes note of what nations are doing. Even here in America, he sees our immorality and our filth. He sees how night after night people download movies that are filled with explicit sexual scenes. He sees our abortion mills. He sees our redefinition of marriage. He sees our willingness to accept and normalize fornication and adultery. He sees our willingness to accept homosexuality and trans transgenderism. And they tell me now there are some hundred genders when God says there's only two. And yet the wonder of it all, as God saw the wickedness of Nineveh, he still loved and cared for these people. That's why he sent a prophet yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's a message of grace. Could he have destroyed the city immediately? Yes, he could have. And so the prophecy that we're going to study is not a hard, fast prophecy. God is extending his mercy to them. God cared for the Ninevites as we should care for the generation in which we live. So there's Jonah's commission. There's Jonah's message. Third, there's Jonah's response. Jonah's response. Listen to verse 3. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship that, which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, twice over, it's underscored from the presence of the Lord because God wants to emphasize that the location is not the issue, but God is issue, the issue. It's not the place... It's the person of the Lord that's the real issue. Now, obviously, on the one hand, Jonah knew that he could not flee from the literal presence of an omnipotent God. And though there are certainly servants in the history of the church and even amongst the Jews who tried to flee, you can't flee from God. Many a pastor, they have problems in a church, and so what do they do? They put out their resume and they go from one church to another only to find out the same problems are in every church, just a different set of faces. He had read what King David had written. King David said in that great Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? My granddaughters memorized Psalm 139. That was a great gift to us 
when they recited the whole psalm, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. So Jonah knew he could not flee from the literal presence of the Lord. On the other hand, his plan is to get far enough from God so that he could remove himself from God's call and influence on his life. After all, if you're 3,000 miles away in Tarshish, how can you preach, how can you preach to the Ninevites? Now, Tarshish was a city in Jonah's day that was considered to be at the very ends of the earth. Here's a map to help you to get perspective. You see uh, Joppa there, that would be Tel Aviv today. I've stood on that bluff that overlooks the bay where Jonah was to get on a, where Jonah got on a boat and he went to Tarshish. It's the opposite direction. It's southern Spain. Spain. God says go east. What does he do? He goes west. Now, there are some scholars today who say, well, we don't know where Tarshish is. They're educated beyond their own intelligence. For 1,900 years, the church knew where Tarshish is, and the Jews have always known where Tarshish is. It's about 2,500 miles from Joppa. So he's 3,000 miles away if he goes to Tarshish from where God wants him to be. And in any case, he seeks to flee. He goes down to the bay. He gets in a ship. And of course, he's going because he doesn't want to go to the Ninevites. Now, have some compassion on this brother. We can be quick to judge him. But number one, when you consider what the Ninevites were like in their utter disdain for the Jews the Iranian people, and understand there is an Iranian church of born-again believers that we should pray for. It's not like the Hebrew wears the white hat and, you know, the Muslim wears the dark hat and God loves the Jew and he hates the Muslim. It's not like that at all. And we'll speak about that before we're done with this prophet. But there's born-again people in Iran. But on the same hand, there's people, it's written into their constitution and bylaws, they want to wipe out Israel and drive them into the sea. That's the kind of spirit the Ninevites have towards the Jewish people in Jonah's day. Think about Elijah the prophet. He ran for his life over a single queen, Queen Jezebel. One woman sent him into fleeing. That here's Jonah, Jonah, there's an entire kingdom that sends him a running. Now, it's rather interesting. He goes down, he books a fare, space available. He's got the money. He could have easily rationalized, this must be providence. This must be the will of God. And sometimes that's what we do. We make up our mind when the circumstances seem favorable that this must be God's will. Providence or no providence, it's not circumstances that are the ultimate test. It's the Word of God. And this man had a clear word from God. The Word of the Lord came to Jonah. And we can take providences and distort them in our fallen heart because the heart is desperately wicked by nature. 
or the father of lies with his fiery darts can convince you. And that's what he always does. Has God said, you can't really believe it. You really can't camp on it. And we can use our circumstances and put God's stamp of approval on it. So he goes, he buys a ticket, he begins the journey. And many a Christian might have thought in our day that when they do the same things, these circumstances mean it's God's will. Now, I don't think for a second Jonah thought that. He knew he was running from God. There was no doubt in his mind that he was disobeying. Now, at best, your circumstances might be confirmatory, but they are to be in subjection to the authority of Scripture. And we live in a day more and more, you see these movements like Bethel and Hillsong and all these uh, prosperity preachers, and they put circumstances over the authority of Scripture. They put experience over the authority of Scripture. I spoke in tongues, ipso facto, it must be real. What we are seeing in this movement in our nation is no different from what I've witnessed in India than Hindus do. Speak in tongues, shake uncontrollably, fall on the floor. No, it's the authority of Scripture that must be the final rule of life. Now think about this for just a moment. He's an unusual prophet. Think about what Amos wrote. Amos was a contemporary of Jonah. Amos wrote this, the Lord God has spoken. Who can refuse to prophesy? I have a clear word from God. I know what I need to do. This is the only prophet in the history of prophets whoever takes a direct word from God and chooses to disobey it. Now, there are certainly other men. Moses was a prophet. The coming prophet who came, Jesus, was likened to Moses. Jeremiah was a prophet. And maybe for a time they rebelled. But this particular prophet outright rebels. Now, why did he do it? Now, there are several explanations that are given. Some say he was afraid. If you go and preach, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's not the way you win friends and influence people. That's a good way to get yourself beheaded. And as I've thought about it, I don't think for a second that that's what drove this decision. He was not a fraidy cat. In fact, none of the prophets were. Remember, you didn't inherit this office. You didn't uh, choose yourself to be a prophet. You were handpicked by God himself. There's not a single prophet in the Holy Scripture who were scared fraidy cats. Second, as I study the book of Jonah, I find the reason for fear not keeping with this book. Look at verse 12 of this chapter. He said to them, that is the sailors, we'll study it next time, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know on account of me this great storm has come upon you. Those aren't the words of a coward. No coward would say, pick me up, throw me overboard into the sea. Some have said, well, he ran because he was a bigoted Hebrew. And they argue that he was a reflection of the people of Israel at the time, which is not true. But nonetheless, since he was a Jew, why should I care about those pagan goyim? Let the Gentiles perish. Who cares? We're the chosen people of God. It's an interesting explanation. But there is certainly nothing in the record of Scripture that would say that this man was a bigot. 
In fact, I think there's a theological reason why he fled, and I don't have to wonder because it's found in the text of Scripture. Look at chapter 4 in verse 2. The reason he fled is because he was a patriot, and his patriotism was driven by his theology. Let me read chapter 4 in verse 2. He prayed, that is Jonah, he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I know that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. See, Jonah did not want to preach this message of grace because he knew that if Nineveh repented, then God would spare Nineveh. And because Jonah loved his nation, he wanted the Ninevites to be judged. Now, remember, we covered some of this in the introductory message. Remember, the northern kingdom had been living in disobedience. And there were three prophets who were contemporaries of Jonah, one Isaiah, two Amos, and three Hosea. And when you read those men, their preaching and message to the northern kingdom was the same. God is sick and tired of your disobedience. And if you do not repent as the people of God, he's going to bring a nation down from the north and he's going to discipline you. Amos warned Israel, therefore, Amos 5, 27, therefore I will make you go into exile beyond Damascus. That's Assyria. I'll make you go in exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Hosea 9 said, they will not remain in the Lord's land, but Ephraim will return to Egypt. And in Assyria, they, the northern kingdom, will eat unclean food. In Hosea 11 and verse 5, God again underscored the captor would be Assyria. They will not return to the land of Egypt. That will not be the place of captivity at this time. You're not going back to, to be prisoners in Egypt like they were in Moses' day. But where are you going to go? Assyria. They will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria. He will be their king because they refuse to return to me. I won't take the time, but jot down Isaiah 7, 17 to 25. Isaiah gives an extended prophecy, giving the details of what the Assyrian captors are going to accomplish. Now, if you know me, I love this country with its many flaws. And if I could have served to defend our nation, I would have, but my left arm kept me from doing so, even if I wanted to. My father served in the Second World War and the Korean War, and I have two sons who are Marines. I love this nation, and many of you do, and yet I am equally disgusted with the shameful ways in which we have gone. And certainly no nation is perfect any more than there are any perfect churches in America. And it's still in many ways the greatest nation on the face of the earth. That's why people are clawing their way to want to come into it. Some, I suppose, no doubt to destroy us, but they want to come here because it's the land of promise. And God's Word teaches in the Torah that we should be compassionate to the alien and the foreigner who wants to come in. But he also underscored that there were certain parameters by which someone could come in. While we are called to pray for our nation and God provided guidelines for the laws of a nation, our patriotism should never supersede our obedience to Him. 
to listen again to today's message, use the Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogy app, available for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program JNH2. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found in the iTunes Store and Google Play Store. And be sure to listen to Audrey's Rare But Real podcast found on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcast platforms. When we return Monday, join us as we continue in the book of Jonah and Search the Scriptures.